Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between myself, Will Page, the author and the economist, and the independent analyst, Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how the financial markets really work. And it's the only podcast out there that's showing a clear correlation with the stock market. That is, when the market goes down, our audience goes up. So we're going to welcome our new listeners this week. So this week, we want to take stock of the central banks, the hiking rates in the US, the hiking rates in the UK. But those rates are still way behind the rate of inflation. So what does that all mean for bubbles, especially tech bubbles, who are dependent on a different form of finance, that is venture capital? That venture capital is one step removed from conventional lending, so that's what I want to dig into this week. More in a moment. So for Richard... The best lesson you've taught me on this podcast, and we've had almost 60 episodes now, is when you famously said, you know what happens when a stock market falls by 90%? It means it fell by 80%, then it halved. That loss of faith moment, the psychology of fear and greed, the herd-like behavior, the animal spirits, if you want to call it. And I thought that'd be a great way to dig into this week's turmoil in stock markets. And I'm hearing a lot, but let me ask you, what are you seeing out there in the marketplace? So, Will, I think the first point we want to get into is that we are about 250 days into a bear market, into stocks falling. Mm -hmm. And what that tends to mean is that people in the first 100 days of that are always wanting to believe that things will get better. There'll be a mean reversion. Stocks will go back up. And then slowly, very slowly, you start to see a few people, as you talked about fear and greed, getting a little panicky and now I think after the interest rate rises, after the volatility we've seen in the past few months, you see people jamming the gearbox into reverse and then <laughs> pounding down on the accelerator. So there are a whole series of areas across the markets where people are now recognizing not just inflation, energy prices, the war in Ukraine, and all the attendant inflation that springs from that are going to change patterns of behavior. And we've talked time and again on this podcast about behavior. So the behavior that we saw in the pandemic, the time spent on gaming and on TV content, the dog years in e-commerce that, that raced forward seven years in terms of the penetration curve, all of that is going to get wound back because people aren't going to have the extra discretionary income that instead is going to have to go on their energy bills, is going to have to go on their food bills, and is going to get eaten away by the devaluation of the currencies that we all live with. And certainly here in the UK, we are rapidly dropping to one-to-one -one parity to the dollar. And many times in the past, certainly when I came to the UK 30 years ago, it was $2 to the pound, and now it's going to go to one-to-one. -to -one. 
So for all the companies in the market, as well as the investors, their thinking has to change. So if you're a big telecoms company, one of the big inputs for running your network is your energy costs, and those are going through the roof. If you're a car company, do you need to run TV ads? Because guess what? You weren't able to produce as many cars as you'd hoped for this year, certainly not as many electric vehicles, and everything's getting sold six months in advance. Why do you need to advertise? So you're seeing lots of instances like this where companies have to change the behavior, and that's seeping through to investors who have to think about the types of stocks that they want to own. Are they going to chase growth or act in a defensive manner and just figure out what is absolutely essential to preserve looking forward for the next 12 months or so. Right. So if they go into defensive manner, that'll be going back into the safe zone of stocks, I guess. But I want to turn attention to the tech market because that is different. I mean, interest rates are going up. Inflation's going up even more. That might mean, dare I say it, that governments are simply inflating away their stock of debt. Never could that happen. For the tech market, they kind of work in their own bubble to name check this podcast. They have friends and family with deep pockets. They have venture capitalists, which would take a principle in the company. What does all this mean for tech? Well, okay. When you talk about tech, Will, you have to go from, on the one hand, the Apples of the world or Googles or Microsofts or Amazons, which are trillion to $2 trillion market cap companies with hundreds of billions of dollars of cash on their balance sheet. To which they can buy back their own stock. Where they can buy back their own stock. If it goes to deflated values, they can continue to invest through the cycle. And that's one of the reasons we've talked time and again about why big tech retains its power through these difficult economic times. They can sustain their employee base. They can sustain their capital investments. They can sustain their R&D. And then you go all the way down the scale to the little tech companies that are living off that venture funding or angel investor funding, where they've raised enough money to keep going through six months or a year from their friends and family, or they've got one VC that's made a bet on them that hoping that they can develop a product. Now, the problem for most of the companies in the market that are more down to the bottom end of the scale is that their business plans depend on lots of other companies that are also getting funded. So not only were there eight or 10 companies in London that were promising to run a quick commerce business model and bring you a Snickers bar and a Coke in 10 minutes and (laughs) spending like drunken sailors to acquire you to download their app. Now, if all of those companies aren't out there trying to get you to download their app, that means the companies that specialize in finding audiences for app installs or mm-hmm. user acquisition, they will also suffer. An if there's of a small software company that produces software that helps very small businesses find temporary talent to recruit to work on projects, well, if all those little companies are no longer hiring, well, they'll fall by the wayside. So again, just like the energy price example I had for a telco or a manufacturer, when one of their big input costs goes up, they have to adjust. You have all these little companies that were maybe inventing a world-changing product, but they were expecting to sell it to a lot of other little companies. And those little companies aren't going to get funded anymore. They aren't going to be able to buy those products. And indeed, even for some of the largest tech giants, the Facebooks or the Googles of the world, a lot of their spend comes from small and medium-sized enterprises aggregating their overall demand. And if their overall demand falls, they'll see it in their numbers too. Now, one part of the financial community that we never really discussed that much in this podcast, but I think it's worth just touching on here is the bond market. 
And I have to admit, I struggle to follow the dynamics of the bond market. But as these interest rates start going up, as this inflation starts going up even higher, do you want to just walk me through what that means in the bond market as well? Well, if you remember back probably three or four years ago, when people were worried about deflation, and you had countries like Germany and Switzerland that were perceived as incredibly stable, well-funded countries, and they were issuing bonds with negative interest rates. So here's a 50-year bond. If you buy a bond worth 100 Swiss francs, in 50 years, we'll give you back 98. And you thought that inflation would eat away the value of money such that 98 Swiss francs would be worth a lot more relative to all the other currencies in the market in 50 years' time. The worry was about deflation and that asset prices would go down, there'd be a lack of demand, and we'd all be in a market where we'd be lucky to keep our money flat. Now, as interest rates are rising, you have a major change in the calculus, in the thinking about expected returns from other asset classes, whether it's real estate or, or venture investing or the stock market. And again, if you have $100 and you put it in a bond at a 0% interest rate, what do you get back in 10 years? You get the same 100 back, right? <laughs> but now if you have an interest rate of 3 or 4% and you think of this of compounding over 10 years, and you put it into a bond at 100 now, and 10 years later, you're going to have $140 or pounds or euros or whatever the currency is. So all of a sudden, the hurdle rate, the risk-free rate, if as long as you don't assume that the person who issued the bond is going to default on you, the risk-free rate, leaving aside inflation, is now a much higher hurdle rate. Right. So the returns it's, it's... you need to expect from investments like tech stocks or venture investments or any sort of investment becomes that much higher because you have a place to put your money, let's say your bank account, which for the last 10 years, you've got no interest income effectively. And now all of a sudden, as interest rate rises come through, you'll start getting interest on the cash that's sitting in the bank doing nothing, which means you've got to find something even better to put it in, in a tough economy to make it worth investing outside of that bank account. Very clear. It's almost like we've installed this market, which has been so frothy for the past three or four years with a brand new benchmark. Is that a fair comment? It's going to bring money back to its senses. I would say very unfortunately, since the global financial crisis, you have effectively made money free. The consequences of that are fairly clear. The people who could borrow a lot of money at literally no cost got a lot richer. And what you've seen over the past decade or more since the global financial crisis is a massive increase in inequality. I yeah. think it's pretty clear that making money free has allowed people to take risks and to make tremendous sums of profits that haven't trickled down through the rest of the economy, whether you believe in trickle-down economics in the first place. And now, all of a sudden, money is not free there's going to be an additional cost to it. And again, it's going to change the calculus. It's going to change the thinking of investors and how they approach risk and how they approach what they do with the money they can borrow. We introduce a bond market to the way this bubble trouble world functions. It's a bit of a reality check, but this whole interest rate scenario must mean different things to different people. And I wonder whether you could kind of walk me through what does that mean for founders? What does it mean for pension funds? What does it mean for the venture capitalists? Do they all respond the same way or do some of them see an opportunity? Do others see a threat? There's going to be a spectrum of 
everything from absolute despair to cheering from the rooftops when these interest rates go up. The bond market has struggled with the concept of risk because when your base rate is zero or 1%, it's not too exciting. And so it encourages the bond market to pursue junk bonds, to pursue higher risk investments with less promise of paying back in search of that precious yield. Because really what they're trying to do is make sure over a very long period of time, if you're running an insurance company or a pension fund, that a large portion of your assets will have a guaranteed rate of return. Now, for the other end of the risk spectrum, those who who don't want low risk, they want high risk founders or VCs. They're looking for spectacular returns and they're willing to roll the dice. Now, all of a sudden, their ability to get free funding to pursue their pet projects, it's becoming a lot tougher. It matters for raising money it, because, again, you have to promise greater returns and those greater returns have to be promised against what is clearly going to be, and I don't think it's any great forecast to drop on our listeners, what's going to be an extremely tough economic backdrop between now and the end of next year. Before we go to the break, I also want to bring it back to a favorite subject of yours, which is SPACs. Ah. We've got a podcast called Back in SPACs. We've played around with how to describe them as a premature baby minus a business plan, but they've been back in the headlines as well. And we've discussed this recently, which is SPACs are beginning to wobble. I can get why. But you've said that it's not going to be contagious. It's too small. You have the term too big to fail. This is too small. It looks to me like some sort of the, the masthead SPAC players seem to be going belly up. So, indeed, one of the things I'm going to be most proud of when we look back on our 60 episodes plus of Bubble Trouble and many more to come is having called things like SPACs correctly. Now, my definition of SPACs at the time was hey, give me money for an idea I haven't had yet. In other words, deposit money in this blank check company. Put all sorts of money in my bank account. I will only take a bit of it away from you as my promoter fee. And I am going to scour the universe on your behalf to find fantastic investments. Now, this was a huge money spinner for the banks, which launched all these companies. It was a great money spinner for the promoters, which had a sort of heads I win, tails you lose situation to get their money out first. But big pools of money built up, chasing ideas and a shortage of ideas for them to buy. Now, the thing with the SPACs, as we talked about, is they have a time limit on them. After two years, if you haven't found a target to put your special purpose acquisition company to work acquiring, then you got to give the money back. They're not open-ended bank accounts where you can just leave the money there in perpetuity. And investors, now that they know they can get 3 or 4% elsewhere, are not going to want to leave the money there. So one of the loudest, biggest ego, some would say completely psychopathic promoters of these SPACs <laughs> was a, a Silicon Valley executive, ex-Facebook executive named Chamath and Palapataya. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Name. And he has shut down his two high-profile SPACs and said, look, I can't find any targets for them. Now, this was the guy who was a year ago saying, give me all your money. I, as the, a smaller subset of the versions of Messiah, I am going to take your money to the promised land of riches. And he raised two big blank check companies of a billion and a half dollars. Now, 
For me, this is a signal that bubbles are bursting. There are still hundreds of SPACs out there having raised billions of dollars, and they all need to find targets in a very short amount of time. But let's face it, the hurdle rate for them to make returns for their investors is a lot higher. Those investors will get increasingly tetchy about getting their money out. And Chemeth, well, I don't think he's going to be humbled by this, but I certainly don't think anyone will be handing him money anymore after he took it for two years and wasn't able to find a target to spend it on. <laughs> and those investors, like you said earlier, now have options because you have this new benchmark in the market called bonds. So if you want to run for cover, that option is there for you. So after two years of watching a plane fail to get down the runway, you can go back to the safe zone. Well, I think there's one other thing that, that I think is really important because where Chamath really made his name was investing in a stock called Virgin Galactic. The idea that consumer space travel would be the next big thing. And of course, when we were all locked in our living rooms or dens or dining rooms or what have you in the pandemic, it was wonderful <laughs> to dream about things like space travel or the metaverse or whatever other nonsense <laughs> you were willing to invest in. Because frankly, as we talked about with our episodes on Robinhood and GameStop, this had become kind of a, uh, an amusement. It wasn't serious investing. It was just a, something to play around with. And Chamath obviously sold out his stake in Virgin Galactic at a much higher price. The SPAC has crashed to, from 55, I think, at one point to $5. And obviously Jesus. now the notion that this will scale into a real business is getting questioned in a more serious way. Or that people have woken up and the scales have fallen from their eyes and that they've come back after the wild party and are all hungover. You can argue all sorts of different scenarios for how this all unwound. But the reality is people were backing all sorts of crazy ideas just out of something to do in the pandemic. And now all of these SPACs not having been able to find acquisition targets, are sitting there literally empty-handed, cash-rich and asset-poor. And on that basis, you're going to expect a whole heap of lawsuits, acrimony, and the idea that you can have open-ended fundraisings with no specific idea in mind, the idea of give me money for an idea I haven't had yet, just fill my boots and I'll see if I ever going back and fill yours, I don't think that's going to fly anymore. Wow. Well, as we go to the break, let me just wrap it up by saying to my audience here that I think what Rich has done is illustrate the transmission mechanism of interest rates. You can jack up rates, but how does that feed through into the market? And I always like to think of direct effects, indirect effects, and induced effects, like throwing a stone in the water. You throw a stone in the water, it makes a splash. It's a direct effect. Then it causes a ripple. That's an ind indirect effect then it could raise the water level. That would be an induced effect. And I think what we're seeing here is as interest rates work their way through the market, it's the induced effect. The introduction of a bond market that's been DEAD for many years now gives investors a safe zone to relate their capital back into. And that adjustment, that benchmark, is going to change a whole lot more than we're currently bargaining for. So we'll be back in part two to go down the rabbit hole in one of these topics, and we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble. In the first part, I was talking a bit about interest rates with Will and how the hurdle rate for investments has just gone up because you might actually get some interest for the money you're sitting on in the bank. Now I want to turn back to the cause of that rise in interest rates, the dreaded inflation. 
the prices we see going up all over the place. When I go to the supermarket, when I go to buy a coffee, when I go for restaurants, the price of everything seems to be rising. And I don't even drive a car. I haven't seen my fuel costs go up. I don't dare to look at my electricity or gas bills. All that is going to be rising and rising. Now, Will, a few weeks ago, you came on this pod and you cried foul on the way in which the government calculates headline inflation numbers. And you were arguing, hey, it's not as bad as it seems. Mm -hmm. I gather you want to get back into the ring and fight for your cause one more time. So let's hear it. Tell me why the inflation we see all around us isn't nearly as bad as we think. Well, you called me out last time, so I am going to go back in the ring and go boxing with you because I do think I've got some evidence to justify my case. And the way I gathered that evidence base was I did a really novel thing, Richard. Can you guess what that is? Some research? Well, not just research, but if you want to question government statistics, I spoke to a government statistician at length to understand how this metric is made up. And I'm talking about the statistician in Newport, Wales, who is responsible for their 8.9% inflation target, which is the markets. I spoke to him. I went straight to the top. I just want to kind of help you and the audience understand what I uncovered. So let's go back to my original case, which is, put simply, a lot of people spent a lot of money commuting to work pre-lockdown. A lot of those people no longer have to commute to work post-lockdown. Therefore, they've had a huge saving that overshadows all the increases in the prices of tea and croissants and petrol that they experience because they don't have to pay for those train season tickets anymore. I'm not saying that's everyone. I'm saying that's someone, but there's a lot that have gone through that effect. I also added to the mix creator tools, which makes doing work less expensive, real estate, which you don't need so much of. There's other stuff going on in the market, which pulls the price down. None of that's in the basket. What matters most is being measured least. And this sort of event, events that's happening in the economy aren't being measured at all. So here's how it kicks in for me. And you have inflation, which is a measure of prices. A price of milk goes up from one pound to one pound ten pence. If that is the only thing in the inflation basket, inflation's gone up ten percent. Okay, but then you have the weights, and this is where it gets interesting. The weights into which you, how much of the weight of the consumer basket should that item represent? So we have weights and we have prices. Richie, the big discovery I learned is that the prices change but the weights do not. But Will, hang on a second. I'm gonna use the off-license local shop around the corner from your house. When I went in last weekend after our run to buy a few things before I cycled home, he showed me two butters. One which had a price on it which said 189, and the one that had just been delivered to him which said 239. That was a 50p increase in the price of butter. It was a 25% plus increase in the price of butter. Now, I do not think the weight in the basket of groceries, of butter as an essential commodity, certainly in my diet, is going to change dramatically. I understand your point that we might be commuting less, we might need less center city real estate and the value of real estate outside and in the suburbs goes up because we're commuting less, we might spend more on this or that. But these central weights of, for example, food prices or energy prices, they should be as part of fulfilling Maslow's hierarchy of needs, relatively constant in the basket. Tell me why that's wrong. Well, the weights 
is where it does get quite interesting. And you have a point, and I respect that point. I use olive oil and bread, not butter, but that's your choice. You have your point. But for me, when I look at the weights, what I learned when I spoke to the statistician responsible for this is they're out of date. Well, they're not out of date. They are what they are. They are two-year-old weights used in the current year. So in the year of 2020, when the world changed, the weights that were applied to making up the inflation basket were de by design two years old. They're related to 2018 when the world was normal. Does that not strike you as a little bit fishy, Richard? The fact that we're going to see the world transform in a pandemic, you know, silence the streets of London, but the weights which decide how we spend that money remain unchanged from 2018. So I have a problem with how you're approaching this analysis as a whole, because again, back to my Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we need shelter, we need food, we need clothing. No, 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 no. Let me add, let me ask something. That. My hierarchy needs is I need weights that reflect today, not the world two years ago. And you're willing to be on a hunger strike as long as it takes to get those weights. But let's <laughs> leave, let's pause that. I'm saying the basket, the, the items which go into the basket of calculating what are what inflation, how inflation is measured. Yes, they can change based on a pandemic year or two years earlier or two years later, and our social behaviors change. I get that. But the core measures of inflation, and I haven't looked at the numbers nearly as long as you have, but those core measures of inflation should be around some core baskets of things that we can't live without. We can't live without no. these wonderful utilities we've come Richie, used to. you're like a newspaper editor pushing back on my fine investigative journalism. So let me come again. So let me hit you hard on the commuter point. The thrust of my argument, people don't commute anymore. People won't spend stupid amounts of money to commute to work anymore. If you lived in Reading and you worked in London, you were spending £6,000 a year on a season ticket for okay. the trains. Yeah. So then I probed in my investigation to try and understand how does this all work? How does travel work? He said, oh, we don't do commuting as part of the CPI basket. We just have train travel grouped as one. So I said, so how would it work if I'm no longer spending £6,000 on a season ticket because I can work from home, which is possibly behind the mortgage and private school fees, the second, third biggest budget line item in the family accounts. So I don't spend that. I work from home. But you can't spot that. They said, yes. That made me worried. Then I probed further and said, hold on a second, what if I no longer have to spend on this you know, essential travel, that is to commute to work, so I'm up £6,000 in my family budget, but I do decide to travel to Scotland more often to see my parents, that's discretionary budget, can you differentiate in that? They said, no, we don't do that at the ONS. They don't do that type of breakdown. So the thrust of my argument is the cost of commuting has been transformed. What I have proven, my newspaper editor who continues to reject my story, is that they can't spot it. So, again, I'm not here to perform some autopsy on the calculation of consumer price inflation. You gave a great example there of why, on the one hand, it implies that someone needs to make a million pounds to spend 0.6% of their income on commuting, which means a 6,000 pound season ticket. I balance that off against myself and I do all of my commuting by bicycle. So I've never been part of that train travel commuting cost. Now, I don't know what goes into the complete and utter sausage factory of government statistics. 
I know there are a lot of fine people working on that, and whatever their output is will be massaged by the politicians, because I've heard enough on Radio 4 in the morning of those massaging efforts by the government to skate over the topics that a presenter might ask them six or eight times to answer a direct question, and they avoid it. So I'm not going to argue with you about the composition of those weights or the fact that they ought to have changed. My simple point was what I observe around me is the same as the proprietor of the off-license on your corner selling all these groceries. We are all observing prices going up. And I would argue the central problem for inflation is our wages are not going to go up nearly as quickly as the prices do. And certainly the wages are not going up nearly as quickly as our energy costs are. And that leaves a lot of people out of pocket. I'm not going to get involved in dissecting these government statistics, but honestly, what are these weights? Who comes up with them? And are they really relevant? Do people really use them for policymaking? They do. And this is where it gets really interesting. I say to my editor, rejecting my story again at the desk, which is, I found out what the weight is for train travel in this country. It is a whopping, huge, monstrous 0.6% of expenditure from your average person in the British society. Now, if that person uh, who is traveling from Reading to London every day for work has to spend £6,000 on a ticket and they're on a 60000 pre-tax salary, you can work out the mess. But at 0.6%, that assumes that person's earning a million pounds a year. So again, this is all train travel, work and leisure, Eurostar and underground. That's their metric that they use. And I get it. So statisticians, their job is to count the beans. The economist looks at the gaps between the beans. And I'm simply saying that might work statistically for the theory of calculating inflation. I don't think that type of weight with this much turmoil in the market, with the effects of a pandemic, with the introduction of working from home, <coughs> is practical. There's no way that you can say that 0.6% of expenditure goes on train travel pre-pandemic and it's not changed since. So there's issues there. I just don't think it's convincing. Okay, but where I push back on this whole weights question across the board, and I'm sorry for my cub reporter, Will Page, he's going to have to go back to the desk and rewrite the story again, is that it has ever been thus. Okay, that all of these measures at a societal level have always been imperfect because it's like asking what the average height of a man or a woman in the UK is. <laughs> They're always going to be outliers. They're always going to be flaws in how you calculate these consumer price baskets. And you or I may buy no items that are in that basket, or we may buy all of them. There's I no know. easy way to get that, that, that bottom-up clear view in the same way as if you look at America, just the mere fact of counting the population, the census every decade, has become incredibly politically fraught. So again, I would say, I don't care about the weights, Will. Talk to me about the real ways in which prices people pay every day are going up ineluctably. Well, let me just come in on that. So again, the thrust here is that the weights are the problem, not the prices. And the problem is the weights don't change. They are constant and they're two years out of date. And that's how the world works. That's how financial markets respond. The other thing here is statisticians are not interested in behavior. They're interested in a basket. 
the basket doesn't change, but the behavior does. If we talk about beer for a second, if I go to a pub and I see that on a typical evening, I'll drink three pints of beer and it's 4.20 and the prices are jacked up to 4.85, there's a huge amount of inflation there. But if I change my behavior to typically buying two pints instead of three, then I've actually got deflation in the economy. Now that's just common sense. Prices went up, won't drink so much, have two points instead of three. I've actually made a cost saving, not experienced inflation. That's common sense. My point is that's not of any interest to the statistician who produces the headline figure that we all worry about today. To me, the bridge that you're, you need to make from that three points to two points is that if the retailer is only selling 60 million times two pints instead of 60 million times three, the beer producer is making a third less beer, then there is going to be a contraction in the economy despite the inflation. And that is the big risk when you have a new government that's just been installed. I won't say elected. They've been installed. And their mantra is, we're going to go for growth. But inflation is robbing people like you from thinking, I can buy that third pint and even the fourth and the fifth, because after the fourth and the fifth, you stop being able to count. You, the inflation is robbing people of the resources to grow and to invest and to spend more because each of the individual things they're buying costs more. And let's face it, wages and the money people have in a bank aren't going up nearly as fast as inflation. Now, mm -hmm. measure it however the heck you want geek out over the weights, doesn't matter to me. I look around and I see evidence of prices rising all over the place. And whatever you put in the basket, we know we'll be paying more apples to apples one month to the next for the next year. All right, Ben Bradley, Bob Woodward here going back to his desk to write tomorrow's story about ratchet in restaurants. What I want you to go back to the desk and do is give us some smoke signals <laughs> for all of this cautionary tales about government statistics you've given us. I did my research, though. I did speak to a statistician, I know, and trust and, me, and there are I enjoy going to dentists more like than speaking to statisticians, but I did my hard work, boss. There are lies, damn lies, and statistics. We have all heard that before. So give okay. us the smoke signals you would be worried about when you think about this notion of inflation, and I'll drop one on you with the interest rates. Okay, I'll give you a couple here. One real quick. Um, we talked about the risk to central bank independence two, three weeks ago, and I think that's going to be prevalent. I think the other thing, and I mentioned it in part one of this podcast, is governments inflating away the stock of debt. Classic trick has been used for centuries. I think that's raising its head again. Second one, and more upside to turn your frown upside down, is the Estee Lauder effect. Did a little bit of research on this, but in past recessions, the company Estee Lauder has seen an uptick in demand for lipstick. Interesting, not me, not you, but other people buying lipstick, fine. And the reason why is it's seen as an affordable luxury. So it's to look for those goods in the market where you cut back on, let's say, European holidays, or you cut back on West End theater, but you do pick up spend on affordable luxuries, which give you that sense of comfort. And I find that, Interesting if that's the way the economy is going just now is to think, what are those Estee Lauder items in the basket of goods that we're actually going to consume more mm. of as times gets tougher? So stock up on your lipstick, brother. That's a fascinating insight, Will. And it also reminds me, and it's a very unfortunate fact, that inequality is clearly with us 
in every country. You don't need to know what a Gini coefficient is to see how that's progressed. And the reality will be in the next year that those who still have the resources are likely to enjoy those luxuries, whereas the rest of us are going to have to do with Estee Lauder lipstick. So we'll I'm going for this sort of bright red. I don't know what shade you're going for. <laughs> Either way, it's been another enlightening episode of Bubble Trouble. We have many other really interesting economic topics to discuss. And indeed, there's a lot of bubbles that I think we're going to see bursting. So thanks for listening. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.